What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look what's going on pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty diamond-handed co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing today, man? To the moon, baby. Space Force, that's what it's, that's what it's there for. Oh, man, what a week. If you follow the stock market or even just are like tuned into culture at all, um, you probably heard about Wall Street bets, the reddit thread turned uh common man brokerage that threatened to take down wall street this past week uh dave what was your just overall experience with this whole wall street bets thing i say i was very unproductive this last week <laughs> <laughs> looking on my phone a lot um i mean apart from like any stock gains that might have been made i think the best part about it was just the memes because the memes there, there were some really like successful uh, ones particularly from like 300 and braveheart i kept seeing this really funny stuff yeah no the memes were great um and just like how many people were getting in on this um i, I don't know it's kind of amazing like at one point pretty much like just the meme culture of it all was able to push a like pretty much a fake crypto crypto dogecoin yes, dogecoin uh like by well, five dollars on dogecoin <laughs> uh like pushed it five times what it was going for at the time just yes. uh it got amazing. up to like uh eight cents seven cents whatever it was now it's like at three cents again well uh we're not here to give you financial uh tips not we financial are, advisors <laughs> yes we are not financial advisors but uh you know who will might be playing a, a fake one is noah centineo um, yeah, <laughs> who's been uh, linked to an untitled film about the whole Wall Street chaos um, surrounding GameStop and AMC stock. Um, you know, this is already uh, picked up by Netflix, this book by Marco Bowl that's you know not even written yet. No, so you're, you're actually combining the two. So Mark Bull is the screenwriter behind Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, Detroit Triple Frontier. Ah, he's, okay. he's um, just developing a movie for Netflix. MGM optioned uh, Ben Mesrich's book about the story, which is not yet written. And Ben Mesrich wrote the book that about the MIT card counters that became 21 and also wrote about Facebook's origins that became the social network. So you have these two mm-hmm. projects, Netflix and MGM, as of right, right now. Um, pretty insane that even before all this had even really concluded, uh, we got these two projects. Um any thoughts around just this becoming a you know movie, TV show, book, whatever it's going to become? Well, I'm not surprised that Hollywood has acted as fast as they have because they actually do this for everything. It's just not usually as high profile, you know, current event, right? Like books get optioned before they're written, uh, or certainly as soon as they're hits. That 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 that's nothing new at all, and you know, even like long feature stories and like the New Yorker get optioned right away. You know, if it's like this like revelation of a new story, um, like the McDonald's scam that got optioned mm-hmm. right away when that story was written, stuff like that. It's pretty common. Right. Yeah. So, um, this is, I think it's funny that they immediately like settled on no Sentinel, like <laughs> kind of awfully fast to cast in my opinion, especially mm-hmm. when you don't really have your script yet. I wonder if they have a specific figure in mind, maybe like that, roaring kitty um streamer uh voice who's behind a lot of the wall street bets action 
maybe he'll be a composite character. I don't know. But you can definitely see him like fulfilling that like traitor bro, Reddit bro stereotype mm-hmm. that they'll probably go for with him. I have to imagine that this will be very much within his lane, whatever character they come up with for him. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to think about, right? Because uh, obviously this is all in the very beginning stages of conceptualization, but um, you have to imagine that they're going to be portraying people behind the keyboard who are leading this and people who are, you know, on wall street and their reaction to it. Um, so uh, I, I'm interested to see in which lane they put Noah Centineo by the time this gets sure. out sometime next year. Um, I'm sure we'll start hearing more people link to it. I mean, it also just feels like Netflix was like, ah, who do we have a, who we have a good relationship with that a lot of our younger fans like, and they were like, ah, Noah Centineo. It's like not, not a very inspired choice in my opinion, but Hey, I mean, if it works, it works, and they know yeah. more than I do in terms of the Good for his agent, I guess. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, you think about movies like The Big Short, you know, uh, even 21, but like anything populist like this, right? Like sticking it to the man, and that, that was the big refrain with the memes, and especially the controversy that uh, happened on Thursday with all the brokered, brokerages. But I, I could see that, like, you can kind of see how they would, like, write this movie. I wonder if they would focus just on one side of it, but like Big Short more or less was people in the game within the financial system, right? And this GameStop story, Wall Street bets, this is largely the common man. At least that's what they'll focus on. Obviously, there, there were professional investors on both sides of this. But uh, if we got the professional side of things, I, I would. everyone's been saying this, I'd love to see a spoof of this of some kind hop in on industry season two with HBO, just because that would be you know in a investment bank and seeing yeah. these i would love to hear their british jokes about uh their their thoughts on these reddit investors you know i feel like that would kind of weave perfectly in as like a two or three episode arc if they wanted to do it yeah that would be actually be really great um yeah i'm just interested to see how this affects these sorts of shows um also if you are uh, tuned in to all this stuff and you want to just drop us a line of like what the next stock that's going to do this is like Hey, let us know. Like we're we're <laughs> ready to take the man down with you. So, uh, our DMs are open at Nostalgia Pod. Uh, Dave, any last thoughts on Wall Street bets before we <laughs> Diamond Hands, baby? Diamond Hands. Um, Sophie, uh, you know, moving from some some goofy news to some you know uh, pretty unfortunate news uh, this past weekend. Pretty shocking. Um, announced that yeah, and I saw it through Pitchfork first which is actually pretty interesting to see the way that they posted it but <laughs> sophie tragically died the music producer creator uh singer um I, it, the way pitchfork i think tweeted it was something along the lines of like sophie has died or something like and people were just like wait what like mm-hmm. it was like no pretext to it just kind of like this happened um it, you know reports have come out that she had gone on top of her roof to try to take a picture of the yep. full moon. Uh, slipped, accident. Yeah. yeah, and it was just accidental. Um, and it's uh, you know pretty tragic because Sophie, while not having a huge um, you know uh, musical output in terms of her own albums and singles, she does have qu- quite a bit of music, but not I'd say large output. Really, making her first album in 2017 um, has just really had a huge impact on the shape of pop music um, Mm -hmm. and the direction it went in the second half of the 2010s. Um, 
just what are your just first general thoughts about Sophie and this obviously tragic passing? Yeah, I mean, well, the the nature of the passing, uh, she was what only thirty one, was mm-hmm. it thirty four? The nature of the passing reminds me a lot of like Anton Yelkin, like just a freak accident, mm-hmm. just incredibly tragic, you know, wow. and just sad. But I mean, I was never, uh, I never really done the full dive on her personal music uh you know her, her solo music but i was very familiar with her as a producer you know as a name i feel like yeah. you would see all the time just as someone who was thought of in high esteem even if she didn't end up having credits it seemed like she was just often at like studio sessions for mm-hmm. a wide variety array of artists but uh obviously i think the the main like mainstream person she was most associated with would be charlie xcx particularly a uh, few projects back, you know, once Charlie really started to take off around Pop 2. Um, and actually one of my favorite, my favorite song on Pop 2 is co-produced, co-written by her out of my head. Um, and then even like you'd see her kind of pop up once in a while, like Big Fish Theory, right? Definitely a, uh, uh, shall we say, departure at that point for, for in sound for Vince Staples. Uh, one of those songs, one of the most uh, eclectic, electronic sounding songs. Yeah, right. Produced by Sophie. And, you know, you, you just when you when, when news counts, you pass the again, the wide array of people in the music industry that were, were struck with grief and sharing how much esteem they had for her is pretty evident. Yeah, it's it's obviously incredibly tragic. But I think as you think about uh, Sophie's legacy and, you know, you mentioned Charlie XCX, who is a, a steadfast pop star at this point maybe one of the most revered uh pop artists critically at least um i I, it's hard to imagine charlie being at the point she's at without sophie's influence and um he's a lot of charlie credits a ton it's it's just kind of insane to think about all the pop output we've got and that's that's gone in this direction you know and you think about like someone like Gex, who mm-hmm. has grown on me, and I know that you stand pretty hard. Um, it's Repop. pretty hard to think about them being who they are without someone like Sophie. So, um, uh, you know, just a huge loss because uh, an innovator in in this field. And describing her sound is just like almost impossible. You know, you listen to a wide array of her songs immaterial you know is such a different song from it's okay to cry but both are just so unique and um yeah one of a kind so uh huge loss rip to sophie um why don't we jump into uh, a new creator though someone that's has gotten quite a bit of acclaim dropping their first album arlo parks collapsed in sunbeams uh arlo parks really came on the scene end of 2018 with her single Cola, mm-hmm. which got a ton of attention, you know, Haley Williams wanted to bring her on a solo tour. And she, uh, I think she got some shout outs from like Michelle Obama and, and people Phoebe, like that. Phoebe Bridgers as well. Yeah. I mean, you get that, that Bridgers co-sign. It's a good sign. Glass Animals was doing a lot of collaborating with her. So, you know, there, there's a lot of talk around this first album from, from Arlo Parks. Did you feel like this lived up to the hype of Parks at this point? <laughs> yeah, so I really went into this completely blind. I was not uh, in or uh, on on top of that 2018 breakout. I feel like rising UK uh, 
young female singers, I was probably more focused on someone like Georgia Smith, I guess, at that point. But mm. yeah, I really wasn't aware of this, despite all, all the cosigns, all the mainstream attention. Um, and well, I, I think her voice is uh, is good. It's like it, it's gentle, yet still pretty engaging. Like I, I like the way she sings. I found Collapse and Sunbeams kind of samey throughout. I think it sounds good. It's really easy to listen to, but I don't think I was I was super wowed. But I don't know. I don't. I don't I'm curious what like people that were really anticipating this would have felt because that yeah. obviously wasn't me. Yeah, you know, um, it's it's interesting to like look and listen through this album and try to understand exactly what she was going for, right? Because uh, if you really tune into the lyrics, it's it's kind of dense in the sense that it's hard to kind of find a, a common thread that pulls it all together. I think if anything, like you said, the, the sameness of the sound and the monotony of it almost kind of ties it together. It really does. I think the, the name of the album describes the sound really well. It's kind of like this washed out, like, pop jazz acoustic mix mm-hmm. um you know a lot of acoustic guitars kind of leading the way with some layered um uh like synths and, and distorted basses at times sometimes you get a distorted guitar solo the drums are pretty standard like drum kits but uh they're, they're snappy they really like come to the forefront of the sound and her voice comes through super clear like i think there's some really nice production on the album but mm-hmm. in the end like I'm not sure exactly what she's going for in terms of like all the the people who are mentioned on this. And I actually feel like she benefits most when she's maybe not trying to drop so many like names and and is more so going for the, like the catchiness of her, of her verses. Cause I think sometimes she, on some of these songs, she puts some lines that just really catch you. And Mm -hmm. if she was building more off, like, things like uh the the chorus on hurt like i think that's just a really uh well written and catchy line um i think this album would have caught me a little bit more it's still a really pleasant listen but you know similar to our zane review i kind of feel like this is the sort of thing you might just put on the background and maybe not <laughs> totally yeah like ah who is this um and that 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 concerns me a little bit yeah yeah i agree uh hurt i enjoyed hurt that has those standard sounding snares, but I still really like that drum line. That I think that's the one that comes together the most. I also liked uh, Hope as well, but yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a wide open lane in like singer songwriter music, and combining that with like R and B, and I think Arlo Parks has a lot of room to grow as evidence on this. But this is definitely a good foundation. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, the thing is, uh, the talent seems pretty undeniable. Like for a first album, I think this is a strong showing. Um, but you know, are, are we grading on a curve here? I don't know. Um, I think we're going to expect a little bit more. And especially when she has this many cosigns, uh, you have to imagine people are going to be collaborating and helping her re- refine yeah. the sound. So, looking forward to that next project. We'll probably be adding her to the uh, nostalgia message of 2021 playlist so check that out on spotify maybe we'll we'll tweet that out on social media linked in the episode description wherever you're watching or listening check it out we're gonna jump to hbo max now because 
we got a movie I think we both were anticipating. It was on my letterboxed uh, wanting to watch uh, my <laughs> watch list. And we, we finally got the little things from uh, geez, uh, from John Lee Hancock. Sorry, yes, I had a brain Hollywood fart there. Um, and with an all-star cast, three leading men that uh, are very well acclaimed. I think they've all won an Academy Award. That's um, correct. I think it, Leto won yeah. it for Dallas Buyers Club, right? Yeah. Yep. Rami Bohemian so, Rhapsody, Denzel for Training Day. Malcolm X and Glory? Or is it Training Day and Glory? Yes, Training Day and Glory. Yeah. Um, pretty uh, pretty excited going into this. And then, then I watched the movie. And Dave, did this live up to your expectations for the movie? Well... My expectations factored in that this movie came out at the end of January. <laughs> and that usually precludes a, uh, shall we say, uh, lowered expectation. Unless it's being pegged as an awards film. But no, this is a new 2021 film. This was not vying for Oscars, even though it is technically eligible. And... Uh, you know, le- you learn more about the little things. You find out that John Lee Hancock actually wrote this script in 1993. The movie yeah. set in the 90s. I did actually like that touch. There's no cell phones and cameras as a result and no GPS. I, I, li- I like how that grounded it, grounded us in L.A. in the 90s. Yet, it's a uh, it, it, does, it doesn't come together. It's a, it, it's a dated thriller and even though it was allegedly written before Seven, man, does it feel like a ripoff of Seven. I think that's a pretty common refrain at this point about the little things, but there's a lot of obvious comparisons, and uh, John Lee Hancock doesn't attempt to like be as stylistic and intentional with his decisions when he makes movies the way someone like David Venture is, so it's a pretty stark comparison when you think about those similarities. So yeah, yeah, little things is a it, it, it's tough. It's it's not like trash, but like it, it doesn't come together. You know that that's I think that's an important point to make is that it's getting a lot of hate online from what I've seen. You know, it's only at forty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and the thing is, I think this movie is pretty entertaining. I think there's some serious pacing issues with it. Like you really go from like some interesting things happening to like long stretches of pretty dull. Um, you know inactive scenes and um you talk about all the similarities from to seven you know older black cop younger uh whippersnapper cop who's you know new school and like the prodigy you have like the weirdo you know serial killer quote unquote um i think the the framing the lighting you know especially the way that they show like the the dead bodies in this movie is very reminiscent of seven in some ways to me. But I think where this movie really lacked for me was Robbie Malik, um, which is really tough to say because if you go back and listen to any of our reviews about Mr. Robot, um, we think he's a very talented guy, but I just did not buy him in this role as like the, you know, young suave uh, boy genius, detective um i think denzel is just doing denzel which is exactly what i expected and wanted and leto's being weird you know <laughs> i mean I, I almost feel like and i want to hear 
what you think about this. Would this movie have benefited if Leto and Malik had switched roles? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it'd be worse. You know, <laughs> I think you think about the strengths of the two. And I think we actually might see a twist on that thought in No Time to Die, where Rami Malik's the, the, the villain to James Bond. And, you know, I mean, we think about Rami as a performer, he, he's more neurotic. Yeah. And him doing that, when he's like, you know, pursing his lips, doing his all his tics, just doesn't fit the, like, L.A. detective role no. at all. Not and all. Leto, yeah, Leto definitely sticks to being strange, being weird. But we've also seen him be a little more of a straight man. So I think that would definitely have helped it, the movie at least a little bit. Yeah, it, I... I just think about Leto like more buttoned up kind of playing that like suave character. And I think he right. just could have played that up more. Whereas yeah, like he's I, like a conventionally handsome man when he chooses to dress nice too. So yeah, I think that actually could have fit. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just kind of left the movie feeling like, huh, I, I, I think this just was miscast strangely within the three, not even like someone different. Just they could have made it better with the yeah. three. But um any scenes or any moments from the movie that stood out to you or you really liked? I don't know. Like, as you say, it's like, it, it's quite drawn out. Like we, it takes so long for the shooter drop with Denzel's character. Mm. And it's like, you have a feeling there's more going on with, uh, you know, this cop at the end, detective at the end of this rope. And then like when it finally happens, when you finally learn, it's like, kind of anticlimactic and dull because I think you either figured it out at that point or it's not actually that like revelatory of a new piece of information for the audience. So it doesn't really land all that well, you know? Mm -hmm. And then meanwhile, what happens with Rami at the end, you know, the buildup, like it's supposed to be like the pinnacle of the thriller. This is going for like a noir thriller kind of vibe. And if you're not immediately stuck on similarities to seven, then I also feel like the results are getting a little anticlimactic. So yeah. Yeah, I think this, this, this script, you know, I, I, you can tell it, they, they were just kind of sitting on this one for a long time. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, um, you know, when I think about the scenes that really stood out to me from this movie, it was just, I think a lot of the Denzel being Denzel, like the first crime scene that he really goes to where the, the woman's been stabbed and he, finds the room across the way that the killer was probably watching her from. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I, I did like, like the scene where um, Leto was in the green car parked on the side of the highway and they kept like going around yeah. and around. How's the trunk space? Just a <laughs> incredibly weird line reading. Yeah. And then I, I also think like the interrogation scene was pretty good. Like there's some moments that stood out, yeah. but mm -hmm. it's a lot of like nothingness in between, which is a little yeah. disappointing. I think my overall, my favorite part about the little things is Leto's like character when, when he would do like the point, like the way he would like hold his hand as he would point at Denzel. I was yeah. like, oh, that was good. I like this touch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love the way Leto walked as that character with his feet pretty much like all the way out to like the side. It was like such a weird choice, but I was like, this is very Leto. I like that he's going for it here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, definitely not in the Denzel pantheon, not in any of their pantheon, I'd say. So. No. If anything, it's another example of like late period Denzel where he just brings a high floor Mm -hmm. to a movie by the nature of his performance but 
as you look at a lot of other late Peter Denzel movies, that only goes so far. Sometimes the movie is still bad, and that's what we got. Not, not that it really matters because the movie wasn't great, but do you think Leto was the serial killer? Oh, God. Uh, Un- unanswerable question. But Yeah, no idea, honestly. Uh, I don't think the movie, as you said, is paced well enough to really actually have that, like, be sitting with you like i don't think anyone finishes the movie and still is like i need to know you know like i don't think anyone (laughs) cares that much there's a really interesting moment in the movie which maybe i'm I'm, it's supposed to be linked to something else but i think it's like near the beginning and denzel goes to like the the cop breakfast place and someone's like hey nice shoes and when when they said that it really made me think because in the beginning in that opening scene where the serial killer like chases down that girl but you never see who it is they like really linger on the guy's shoes so i was like are we supposed oh. to believe that denzel is actually this murderer but there's no but and he's haunting it like it i don't know the whole thing was very like <laughs> mind fucking to me i don't know what was going on so probably shouldn't spend as much energy thinking nah, about it as i did that's enough <laughs> so why don't we move on to another movie palmer on apple plus the fisher stevens project and Fisher Stevens, interesting because he's, yeah. he's won quite a few awards for documentary movies, but um, hasn't really gotten much buzz for scripted work. I guess like yeah, I think of him as an actor. You know, yeah. he's on Succession right now. He's in a million things. So um, interesting to see him helming this project, and the project starring Justin Timberlake. I think a mm-hmm. person who has had some very good movies that he's been in i don't know if i'd say good because of him but good movies he's been in and some movies that maybe aren't so good that he's he's been in and a, a major part of them not being so good in my opinion so uh my expectations going into this were let's see because it's getting quite a bit of decent buzz and palmer is a nice little story about a former uh, star athlete who in college gets injured ends up getting into trouble, going to jail for 12 years, and basically him returning back to his home community and getting his life restarted when um, he the the care of this little boy, this flamboyant little boy, um, kind of falls to him for a mm-hmm. while. And uh, really interesting, uh, I think it's a really interesting choice to make the little boy in this, you know, flamboyant, um, you know it likes things that that girls traditionally like and um i found this movie really delightful to be completely honest i thought it was like a really nice watch i really just walked away feeling like Ryder allen who played sam the little boy is just like gonna be a star he just feels like he really captured the movie for me um but how did you feel about palmer yeah i'm not as warm on it like I, i think it's perfectly fine film like it, it, it's solid it I, I think the issue with it is though and you know this movie was on the blacklist in 2016 i wonder if that's kind of how it eventually got to fisher stevens like this was kind of a movie they were trying to keep the industry was waiting for a way to make it you know figure figure out people to attach to it and i think the simplicity of it all could have been helped better if there was a stronger central performance if you like really cared about uh, what's his name, Eddie uh, Timberlake's character, if you really cared about that, because the performance was so strong, I think that could have carried the film. And I think Timberlake's good in this. Like he's solid. He's a solid actor, but 
he's not good enough to like bring the movie up and i think the way it needed to to like transcend beyond just being solid so it's all right you know i i think that uh, that's a a good point but i actually walked away from this movie feeling like this might be timberlake's best performance um Mm, i mean i i think the part he's best known for is obviously as sean parker in the social network yes but uh it's a you know he has a couple of scenes it's not like a uh a role that you'd put it you'd nominate him for best actor for he's not the primary lead and in this being the lead i think he carries this this emotional heft fairly well um and the only thing i i think i felt pretty frustrated with was um the choices eddie kept making um even though he really wanted to make good choices like basically kidnapping sam um didn't make much sense especially when he has a friend who's a cop he pretty easily could have just like explained what was going on and brought the kid you know to see the cop um friend and so there there were some for me i think it was more like some script choices that were a little like confusing or frustrating um but i thought timberlake was was serviceable and again i go back to the the performances uh sam by Ryder allen i just found that kid super fun and magnetic and definitely the yeah. best part for me uh as yeah, well as um june june squib was pretty good too in my opinion yeah just like in palm springs showing back up just for a little <laughs> bit you know good good from good from her I gotta say, she died way too early in this movie. <laughs> it's like yeah. 20 minutes in, and it's like, oh, goddamn, June, June squibs back out. <laughs> um, any, any like moments or or things you want to shout out? Uh, no, I don't think so. Like, I, I think like it does a good job of making you care for Eddie, care for Sam, want them to succeed. And I think the beats again, they're pretty predictable, but like it's a feel good movie, you know. Like, I, I think. I was thinking about it, you know, like we're set in the uh, Louisiana, I believe it is, but like we don't really dwell on like the fact that we're in like a rural setting all that much. Like I was thinking of like Hillbilly Elegy, for example, where that was a big part of the movie and there's some similar things going on with like domestic issues in that, but like, and, and drug abuse, but like Palmer seemed to kind of just like be on the surface of a lot of things, even like with Sam, right? Like Sam, he's too young to know really who who he is and what he likes and doesn't like yet like you know he just just being himself and like the movie just kind of goes with that and i think that that's handled pretty well um but i i think the way the script is where it's kind of down the middle with everything if we had like a kind of like a more world-class actor it could have been a more special movie or at least like a better like star vehicle movie at least but it, well we got it's still solid yeah, definitely solid. Um, Juno Temple, who plays uh, Sam's mom, Shelly, is in Ted Lasso, where she plays like the exact opposite character, very like <laughs> buttoned up and like always like to the 10th degree. So uh, seeing her and especially when she first returns after leaving Sam with Eddie for a while, uh, she looked horrifying in that scene, which yes. shout out to the makeup department for kind of thinking, instilling that like dread with with her return in a really mm-hmm. interesting way um i thought she was great um and I, i'd like to see her in more things i mean she's had some some side roles but i found her just to be really convincing as a drug addict almost like too convincing so right. uh you know I, I i think shouts to her but other than that 
yeah, I think this is a nice like family movie to watch. Do you have a favorite Timberlake acting performance? Is it Social Network? It's definitely his most consequential performance, and the I think the, you know the the one I like the most. But there's there, I think there's a few other contenders. Yeah, I would probably say the Cry Me a River music video is my favorite <laughs> Timberlake performance. Actually, uh, give me that Scarlet ScarJo and JT back and forth all day. What about you though? What what are yours? Yeah, I mean he has that small moment in Inside Lewin Davis, which I appreciate. Just like Adam oh, Driver right. has that tiny moment, you know, it's like side musician characters. <laughs> but for me, uh, I actually love Friends with Benefits, his rom com yeah. with Mila Kunis, which Ooh. was a great example of Hollywood making the same movie twice Better at the same just time. Friends? Yeah, no, the No Strings <laughs> oh, Attached no strings film, Natalie Portman, Ashton Kutcher which came out first and then friends with benefits comes out later and it's, it's even better. You know, like Olympus has fallen way house down it Armageddon deep impact. This happens from time to time. That's one of my uh, favorite examples. So I think Timberlake and Kunis are both great in that. Uh, <laughs> also, did you ever see in 2011 in time, his movie with Amanda Seyfried? I was actually about to say, I didn't mind in time. Like, I liked it at the time. I, I know yeah. it's like not well liked or anything, and it maybe doesn't hold up at all, but I remember liking it when I saw it. I I remember I was like, yeah, Justin Timberlake, he's going places, this guy, and then uh, didn't really go places. So um, shout out to JT, though. Uh, this is a, a solid performance by him. And we're gonna, now let's jump to Netflix, though. So we're jumping around the, the streaming services here, people. That's right. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk The Dig, the, Sti- the Simon Stone movie. Um, he hasn't really made a lot of feature films. He's a director, primarily. Yeah. Yeah, the, he made the daughter back in 2015, but this is really the first like big movie he's made since then, starring Carrie Mulligan, Ray Fiennes, Lily Allen. Um, pretty stacked cast. Dave, hey Lily Allen. Did I just say Lily Allen? Lily James. Lily James. Jeez, Lily, Lily Allen. Allen. She uh, she was a singer from like the <laughs> 2000s. Oh God. You didn't even uh, say Lily Collins. <laughs> oh God. Um. Sorry. So yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Lily James. Um, Dave, get, break us down down this movie a little bit. What's what's like the plot, the the driving force? Here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, we're on the eve of World War Two, like really breaking out, nineteen thirty nine in Suffolk, England, which is like east towards the coast from London and Cambridge, like the lower east part of London, uh, by kind of by France, and Carrie Mulligan plays a uh you know a landed wealthy widow and on her large estate are these mounds in the field and she's wanted to get them excavated and looked into maybe there's cool things to find in there and she gets uh ray fine's character basil brown who's a archaeological archaeologist archaeologist excuse me slash excavator to go uh go digging go find stuff out and sure enough, they find a Anglo-Saxon burial ship. Which this is based on a true story called the Sutton Who uh, find. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, we kind of get the push pull of who gets to control the dig as well as whether they can pull this off as World War Two is about to break out and priorities change and side characters come in and out of the film. But, uh, you know, it's, a, it's kind of like a sweeping period film, you know, in the english countryside you know it definitely looks the part you get two really good actors at the top at least um and yeah this was a movie this came out on netflix uh i really didn't 
like know much about it. I just knew it was coming out. And I was like, oh, I'll watch Carrie Mulligan again. She was really good and promising young woman. Why not? She's always good. Yeah. And she's good in this. You know, I kind of wish we got more of her. Yeah. You know, I, I think if there's one thing that I would really knock this movie for is I feel like it's a lot of Ray Fines when I kind of wanted just more of all the other characters. And the movie also kind of changes up in a way yeah. like and becomes like a, a kind of a different movie and it's funny because i unfortunately um wasn't able to watch this in one fell swoop and i, I kind of like stopped it right before the change so when i started watching it i was it like is, it is stark <laughs> yeah um and really it's when lily james's character comes in um mm-hmm. as part of like the the expanded excavation efforts yeah. you know and they they say this the museum movie, takes over the the dig and more yes. people come into the fold thank you and um, they say they, they bring on Peggy, Lily's character, um, because she's she's light, so she's not going to fall through, um, which is funny because then she does end up falling through at one point. Um, but uh, it's just interesting because Peggy Pigott uh, was like a pretty well-established archaeologist by this point. So like to like bring her on for that reason and not just be like, yeah, bring her on because she's great just feels like such a strange choice. And then they pretty quickly just make her like, this like romantic sex object within the movie yeah. and i'm like okay <laughs> she, she, she tends to be doing this role a lot doesn't she yeah and not it doesn't like i i think i'm not necessarily knocking lily james for it but i'm wondering more like why they felt like they needed to frame the character in this yeah. sense yeah no absolutely because as you said the second half of the film right is the dig is about to like bear fruit which is like they they actually find like the the treasure that was buried with this anglo-saxon king and uh i was reading a a blog post put out by the british museum talking about the movie and they're very happy with this and i think some of the people from the museum like visited the set and people from the movie went to museum and looked at the artifacts and stuff so it seems to be pretty period detail releasing the broad strokes obviously there's dramatic license but the museum was saying that um it's it's kind of interesting that uh the way the way they they change that focus and i think lily james character kind of showing up and as you said becoming this romantic figure we get this whole romantic side plot with uh carrie mulligan's character's cousin played by johnny flynn and then you get this like moment of conflict when a uh uh, train uh raf training pilot crashes and his plane into the the channel or whatever and it's like what was this i thought we were in this like cerebral archaeology movie with with carrie mulligan and, and ray fines what, what, what is all this for you know yeah. it, it, it just really like threw me for loop not that i thought it was bad or like uh or distracting <laughs> but it just felt like it was from a different like movie like object like the the main mission of the movie just be completely detoured with this stuff you know yeah the the plane crashing is like a very interesting choice because it really moves like rory who's played by johnny flynn like his character forwards like oh i need to like join the british air Air force and take up the fight now and that's kind of impending because i think shortly after the or as the movie's ending king george is signing the decree that you know yes everybody needs to enlist um but like why why that became like a major part of this story where like you had this very nice and i i feel like pretty fascinating relationship between ray fines and carrie mulligan this widowed person who has a son and is also experiencing health complications of her own ray fines is this 
archaeologist who never really got the credit he needed uh, or maybe deserved and seems like he's not totally interested in his own marriage and uh, you know how they kind of are like finding purpose with each other in different ways it was just yeah. like you you have a movie there you don't need to add this of uh, this c plot in you know um, right i don't know just it felt weird but i didn't hate it either like i was kind of like yeah oh, this is interesting i mean i thought there was more meat on the bone with like the drama regarding the dig itself like originally you have the local like ipswich museum trying to like step on basil brown and take over and then once they realize it's of a great magnitude this find the british museum you know and like the the, the you know the government's sake like basically like comes in and then like there's like touches of like the guy from the british museum's touches of like like classist critique and like he's like rubbing his you know uh raising his nose to mm-hmm. brown the process and like they, they just kind of touch on it's all really subtle i thought there's a lot more there you know it's yeah. like and like they kind of just drop all that for the most part and like brown just kind of goes with the dig and gets to still oversee it even though he's not really in charge and then there's a few comments at that toast about uh where mulligan's gonna give the stuff and that that's kind of it like again there, there was more more movie there but yeah. like we got this romantic side plot and, and th- you know and like and again like it's not that i disliked it i actually really like one of their touches where like they don't do the deed when they first mm-hmm. you know embrace johnny flynn lily james they don't and I'm like, oh fuck! And now he's gonna go to war. They're not gonna consummate. Oh no! I like this, but then yep. no, nah, no, nah, they get it on before yeah. he goes <laughs> outside in like a dilapidated old building, just like yeah. Damn, really? I mean, like it was like a really nice sunset. Like that, that was actually like romantic as fuck. Not gonna lie, uh, it was. <laughs> and I, I guess it's paid off in a sense because they make you wait for it. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it was just a strange choice, you know. Like I, I believe this movie is based off a book about the dig. Mm-hmm. And, but I have to imagine this is some of that dramatic license because, like you For said, sure. uh, the Peggy character is, uh, is that wait is Peggy who's Peggy? Yeah. Peggy is Lily James. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the Peggy character, as you said, is like an accomplished yeah. person who's qualified to be there, not just kind of like this greenhorn wife of a fellow excavator. Like, so there were some choices made there, but For sure, dig. you know, still pretty good. It, it was funny when the uh, the British Museum guy came in. He's like, ah, we're just going to claim this for ourselves. And I was like, oh, that, that's a very British museum. Like, this is definitely quite accurate to, to frame them in this way. Yeah. Um, although, uh, apparently also a creative license, which I'm not sure why, they they cast Ken Stott as Charles Phillips from the British Museum. And Ken Stott's like in his 60s, but uh, Charles Phillips in this whole thing was like, 35 years old he was very <laughs> young funny. so uh, yeah interesting like how they kind of like put people in those roles well, for... the biggest one would be carrie mulligan was not the first choice yes to play the widow of course who was that dave nicole kidman hmm. interesting yeah apparently in real life the widow is older than basil brown and yet now we go we totally flip it like hollywood's want to do and carrie mulligan's what 30 years 25 years younger than Ray Fiennes, however old Ray Fiennes is. I don't know. Yeah, let's see. Like Carrie Ray Mulligan's in her early 30s. Definitely a, little, a step, a little, little younger than Nicole Kidman, you know? Yeah, 30 years between them. Uh, right. Um, yeah, you know, it, I, I guess like a, uh, this is a, a movie I would definitely recommend. I think it's really well shot. I think there's a lot of like interesting stuff going on. I think you know kind of going back to like what were they trying to say with a lot of it? i think they're trying to say a lot and i think that 
that detracts a little bit from the movie like like we've kind of harped on um they make some interesting choices with the direction of the movie at, at points but overall like if you enjoy this time period um or just like history at all i think there's some really cool stuff and some good performances to anchor it as well yeah and johnny flynn i think is definitely convincing as like the dashing uh soldier to be slash romantic uh object of interest and if that interests you thought that worked in the dig he's also in emma as the uh romantic interest to Annie taylor joy's emma so check that out he's pretty good in that one as well um also just want to shout out i'm a big fan of the british museum it's a lovely place to visit when uh you can do that if you're ever in london well, Dave, uh, why don't we get to our last movie, which, I mean, this has been a long time coming, but Nostalgia goes to Sundance. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Park City, baby. <laughs> uh, you know, for, fortunately for us, Sundance was virtual this year, um, which allowed us to be able to get movie tickets uh, to see Judas and the Black Messiah, um, a movie I think we both have been highly anticipating the the Shaka King uh, movie. Um, who He's made a few movies, but nothing really high profile. Rising talent, for sure, after this. Yeah, and I, I think this is really going to put him on the map. Um, you know, when you get Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield to be co-leads in a movie about uh, Fred Hampton, uh, right there, the movie should sell. But Shaka mm-hmm. King has done interviews where he's like yeah only warner brothers gave me uh a decent like uh, money pitch for this That's every absurd. other studio like pretty much under undersold it so uh right. really disappointing and you know especially as we start like black history month but within the past year the way that black voices have been um increasingly noticed and, and elevated um just very tone deaf and obviously this was pre-lit and uh, funded before all probably the george floyd thing happened but still just like to not yeah. find the story to be profitable it's being edited is, at that time is ridiculous yeah but, yeah I, I, I just to mention for everyone this will be coming to on hbo max on friday uh february 12th so two fridays from now and this is about the third movie in their run of hbo max releases where it's on the platform for 30 days or whatever and then it'll just be in theaters obviously wonder woman and the little things preceding it but uh after wonder woman this is definitely a big event movie for that hbo max warner brothers push and it's uh it's really great so it's definitely deserving of the hype yeah it's um you know it's been compared at least in structure to um the killing of jesse james by the coward robert ford oh, that's um, good you know telling the the story of of this assassination from the uh, vantage point of the traitor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Lakeith Stanfield in this movie um, playing uh, William O'Neill and uh, Wild Bill O'Neill. Um, this, I don't know, I guess like car thief. Yeah. Petty criminal. Yeah. Car thief in what they're in Chicago and yes. uh, you know, he gets uh, basically used by Jesse Plemons's uh, Roy Mitchell, but pretty much just like avatar for FBI agent in this mm-hmm. movie um, as like a, a double agent to get close to Fred Hampton and provide information about Hampton's 
rise with the Black Panthers and his goings about. It's uh, incredibly interesting. And I think just like that, that pitch right there is like enough to pull anybody in. But then you bring in Daniel Kaluuya in this role as Fred Hampton, who is just like at a hundred the whole time. Like he, and he's painting the black. He's just um, absolutely phenomenal in this film. And I, I feel like his presence is actually almost like too strong to the point where like when he's not on screen, I'm like, man, just get, get him back on screen. I just want right. to see him some more. Um, I heard you say it was really great. Tell me what you liked about the movie. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, <laughs> thinking about what Shaka King said about how they struggled to make this movie. I mean, the script is so strong. Like you said, they make you want so much more of Fred, right? Like he's largely sidelined when he's in jail for parts of the movie. And it's not just all those fire uh, whipping speeches that he gives. And the pace is really immaculate for that. And, you know, when you get those moments where, you know, it's Fred Hampton out in public, showing how great of an orator he was a leader of people a gatherer of of group you know um it it, it, like you know calling things electric and film is cliche but it's like really like that crackling stuff Mm -hmm. and as the movie was going i I just started feeling like shit i was like this is so fucking sad you know and like thematically throughout you know because of how what fred is talking about especially in like those more private conversations where kaluuya is more restrained yet still really charismatic i think like thematically you get to uh a similar place that a lot of other recent movies have gone to like historically speaking this movie is similar to trial of chicago 7 where we of course mm-hmm. fred hampton makes a uh, small appearance in that film because he's there supporting bobby seal one of the founders of black panthers but and that trial that is in fact reference in Jews and the Black Messiah. But I think thematically the movie is actually more similar to Ma Rainey and One Night in Miami because mm. it's so focused on black independence and liberation and what tactics and ideas you should and shouldn't should and should not pursue. And I think everything really nails, you know, throughout this movie. It's so propulsive. Um and you know, Shaka King in the Sundance uh, intro, he's like, enjoy the movie. It's it's not the, the happiest thing, you know? Like, I actually really appreciate how he's like, yeah, this shit, like, kind of sucks, but it's good to watch, yeah. you know? That, that was pretty cool to, like, hear from him at the beginning. Um, nice touch of Sundance. Um, you know, I, I want to clarify before, Roy Mitchell is an actual FBI agent who's been documented in this, but I think whatever. just, like, the point is he's not the center of this. Yeah, scum um, is still scum, whatever. Yeah, and and that's the thing is I almost feel like the way that he's painted in this is like too kind in some sense. Like he's obviously awful, but they're like, oh, maybe he wasn't totally racist, right? And and like, there's I'm glad you brought that up. There's some moments where that is very over the top in Chicago Seven, right? Joseph Gordon Levitt's prosecutor character is like annoyingly portrayed as yeah, he's a good man, you know, even Mm -hmm. though he's doing this bankrupt ass shit in terms of this trial. And like for Plemons, I actually think, again, the casting is perfect because he's yeah. doing a lot of what he do- did when he made his name. Uh, well, I guess he made his name in Friday Night Lights, but when he like burst out dr- more dramatically with uh, uh, as Todd on Breaking Bad, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, this is a two-faced person. Yeah. And you really believe in both of those faces and you don't know which way to, to take it with him, right? Like mm-hmm. Plemons is, is so great for that. And playing this FBI agent who's able to really twist uh 
uh, you know, Lee Stanfield's character and like really like convince him. And, like, you, you you believe that Plemons character thinks the Black Panthers are just as bad as Ku Klux Klan. And, like, oh, well, he doesn't like the Ku Klux Klan either. He's, he can't be racist. But like then you you, you listen more than like, you see that. But as you say, we get some uh, scenes with Jagger Hoover, played by Martin mm-hmm. Sheen. And Hoover is just basically full tilt as like, yeah, like, I, I, I have racist personal beliefs about black people, but more importantly, my, the policies of the FBI are to target and repress them. And Plemons like raises an eyebrow when he's hearing that like to his face. And you're like, huh, it's kind of interesting, I guess, to see that gray area where like you have differences of opinions between various racist people. You know, like I, I actually really appreciate those scenes. And I don't I don't think it actually ends up like making him sympathetic at all. Yeah, a mistake if it did. Yeah, I, I I think in some ways it kind of leads you to be like, oh, maybe Roy Mitchell isn't that bad. But um, I I think in in the end you kind of just understand that these are awful people. I thought it was a really interesting and like affecting choice to have Martin Sheen play J Edgar Hoover and this like over like and potentially this isn't overly like bombastic, but like really like. Uh, in the As open. you mentioned, yeah, just like cruel person who's just like he's walking around kind of like a general like Patton almost in at the beginning of the movie. And he's like in front of this thing, like you need to like find these people and kill them, take them off the street, do whatever you can. Like right. the black people should not be rising to power. Pretty much what he's saying. And Martin Sheen, known for being, you know, America's president in the <laughs> West Wing, yeah. uh, you know, probably, you know, the people that liberals during Donald Trump were just like, oh, I wish the... I'm forgetting what his name is, uh, president, whatever, in oh, the West okay. Wing. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were like, oh, I wish he was our president. Like, and then you have him playing this really awful character. And man, I have to admit, I was even like, um, I was even like, yeah, damn, Martin Sheen, what are you doing here, dude? But Bartlett. Yeah, Bartlett, thank you. Um, but I, I thought that was a really great choice. I wanted to ask, like, Lakeith in this movie is going against someone who's maybe giving the performance of their career. How did you feel about his performance and a, a little bit less of a showy role? Definitely less showy, but more, more scenes, right? Like he is the actual lead. Like Kaluuya is going to get run in best supporting. Uh, I also think this is the role of Lakeith's career because this has been a long time coming for him as being a leading man in like a capital D dramatic film. You know, like, obviously, we love him on Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he's really good and sorry to bother you. Another leading performance. But I feel like this kind of levels up for me, even again, after sorry to bother you for him, because it's a layered character, right? And like, you get those real life clips of that documentary that O'Neill g- uh, gave in that interview, right? Where trying to understand this person as like, you know, and you, you touch on the beginning, too, when he meets Plemons, it's like, O'Neill didn't actually feel all that bad when Malcolm X and Dr. King died. Like, yeah, he felt a little something, but you can tell he's not someone who cared about uh, civil rights, even though it was certainly in his interest to do so in the 1960s, right? Yep. And I think O'Neill and, and Sanfield's performance does such a good job of conveying how much of like a cowardly snake he really was. But like the movie title, like Judas and the Black Messiah, 
the movie was originally called uh, Jesus was my homeboy or something along those lines. But like it does such a great job of making him feel like a Judas because you're seeing it through his perspective, as you said, uh, like uh, Robert Ford, you know, yeah. it's like, and I think Stanfield, you know, the, just the way he's able to convey like that shiftiness and like, it's convincing that he got away with it as, as a mole, right? Like you, you believe in, like, I think, some of those scenes were like he like well there's that violent confrontation at the headquarters and he like sneaks out the back and it's like and then yeah i, I think he's tremendous and uh, how did you feel when he was like really like uh sad about uh drugging fred knowing what was going to happen like yeah he was tears in his eyes just shooken up but he was still doing it like how'd you feel about that like, the o'neill character at that time yeah, you know, I found to I found O'Neill just really like reprehensible. You know, I think that comes across in the movie as like this person who really seemed to like only be out for himself. And I think that's like why this movie works so well. It's this, it's this juxtaposition about this person who was like all about community, all about how do we make this a, a more fair and equal society for everybody whereas o'neill is just like yeah i'm doing this for me and like i i think it obviously being as close to fred as o'neill was all the time he obviously saw the good he was doing and, and you even saw like the credit o'neill got when they like rebuilt the um the panther headquarters and how much work he put into it so i think there was probably some i i actually really liked that scene because i think it really displayed the character's um grapple with like moving towards something that was giving him actual purpose and being stuck in this cycle of uh constant like trying to like push himself forward despite how it might affect other people and this is like that example to the hundredth degree um you know i i thought that was pretty good but how did you feel about it, it seems like maybe you weren't Totally no, no, I liked it. I, th- I yeah. think they do. They do their homework. They 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 show their work with getting O'Neill to that point, and that's why. I, again, I I think the script is really strong. Where like you, you, it serves both characters for the movie O'Neill and Hampton, you know. Um, and like you said, I've Kaluuya. Obviously, this is the first time he's been able to chew on all this, you know, so much stuff, right? Like he he was really good in Get Out, Oscar nominated for Get Out, but it's a different kind of acting chops when you're being a historical figure and you get to have those or, or oratorical scenes, you know, and God, he is so, so, so good in this. And uh, really, again, like the the screenplay and the two performances really hits home with how tragic this story is. And something that I think is under remarked upon in a, like when you learn about civil rights history and stuff, you know, the murder of Fred Hampton is, a footnote if anything when you're learning about this stuff than for the average person you know but like it, it, civil rights movement didn't stop after dr king and malcolm x died you know like there was there was more casualties along the way and this is one of the most tragic ones in that mix given just how you know despicable the fbi activity regarding the, the panthers were. you know i think a lot of people have a negative perception of the black panthers especially their later part of the uh, history certainly warrants that more but like the early stuff i think this movie does a good job of showing that they weren't just like national guard people but they were like really humanitarian you know mm-hmm. um in terms of like kaluuya scenes besides the speeches i actually really liked that like getting the gang together moment where he like goes to that other chicago gang the crowns and he goes to see the uh uh 
poor white people like you know he gets all the groups and the, uh, the latinos as well right and it's like you understand like just how uh, uh inspirational and effective he was as a leader and organizer because of that performance from Kulia. yeah the, i was gonna actually say or ask like out of all like the big speech scenes because Kaluuya gets a bunch of them in this as hampton mm -hmm. um was there one that that you particularly liked or that stood out to you yeah well the second one definitely i think was, was like really emotional scene because like the 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 tragedy and the, the gravity of what's about to come is like really evident in the film at that point. So like I, I, that one like really kind of fucked me up, but I like this scene where he goes to the crowns and the crowns are like all like, you know, strapped up being all intimidating. He's talking to uh, their leader played by Chris Davis, who's Tracy from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, Oh wow, this is, this is really good. And then when they pay that back in that second big speech and you see Chris Davis with that amazing fro and he's just like nodding his head, throwing up his fist. I was like, oh man, they paid everything off so good yeah. in this. Yeah, I, I thought that was really good. I also really liked when he went to, uh, I forgot what the name of it was, but the, the group of white people who had the, um, the, the Confederate flag. Confederate flag behind them. Only because I felt like that really demonstrated like the command that Hampton had in that moment and the way he was like able to be disarming with like his charm but also mm -hmm. be like this incredibly inspiring and powerful presence you know because he, he's at one at, in one moment like soothing his own people's anger and frustration and seeing this symbol of hate that's like up on the stage but also like connecting with these people and talking about why the way that police and the government treat lower people or people who are considered lower within society to them um and and getting them on board with this movement was just so like amazing to see and it's just so convincing the the performance just you know i feel it feels like Leah has to be top of the best supporting actor list for sure after seeing this yeah i think he's definitely getting nominated def and the late entry a, a benefit of mm -hmm. the uh late debut due to this uh, extended oscar eligibility window um yeah it's probably gonna go down to him and sasha baron cohen by the sound of it and maybe leslie odom's in that mix too um and it's, it's kind of interesting to see <laughs> a trio of movies about the 1960s with similar themes all kind of coalescing yeah um, at that the same oscars um so when we've remarked upon a uh, clemens kaluuya and stanfield i just want to mention some of the supporting cast which i also thought are really well done i mentioned chris davis uh Laurel Howery has a kind of, you know, one scene as a fellow um, informant or whatever, or, you know, a FBI person. Then you also have Ashton Sanders from Moonlight. You have Algie Smith from Euphoria. Dominique Thorne, one of the sisters in Beale Street. Like, I think there's some really nice casting in here. But uh, yeah. Dominique Fishback probably is gonna stands say. out the most, of course, who we've been a fan of ever since The Deuce. And mm -hmm. uh, she's really good, you know, in, in this. I think not only does it give a another side to, to Fred Hampton, which I think is a benefit of the screenplay and necessary to really like fully color in who he was as a, as a person, but it's also serving her character in the process as well. It's not just the girlfriend. Yeah. I was going to say, we haven't really talked about her much, but um, playing Deborah Johnson in this, I, I think she exudes like an, an intelligence and a presence. And I, I really like how, they frame the interaction, like the first couple of interactions she has with Fred and pretty much every interaction with like her always kind of expanding and challenging his mindset 
to to grow and open up and to see himself differently even you know from that first speech he gives to uh I forgot it was like a group of community people and she's like you know you're actually a poet and like kind of like framing him in that sense and like kind of like the light bulb that went off for him after that i just was like oh this is really cool that they're not just making her like like the better what you know the better woman behind the the man out in front but like Mm -hmm. this like partner in terms of like helping him see and understand his perspective i thought was really well done so um yeah uh, really impressive from shaka king seems like he's uh destined to be making a lot of these movies and hopefully and i i from everything i've read in interviews with him seems like he's interested in continuing to tell black stories which i think is really awesome as well and i'm sure he'll he'll get a lot more funding after this so um gonna be seeing some some cool stuff from him yeah Um, any last thoughts uh check out the 12th check it out thank you sundance for the early hookup though absolutely um that does it does it for us this week what do we got next week dave yeah so next week we can talk about uh the weekend's performance at the super bowl halftime show which is normal length anything about a longer show is fake news actually uh additionally speaking of uh black excellence we're gonna get two more amazing performers on netflix and malcolm marie john day washington and zendaya the san levinson film very excited to talk about that and new music from the Foo Fighters and Slow Tie. And also a Studio Ghibli movie is coming to HBO Max. Earwig and the Witch, directed by Goro Miyazaki, the son of uh, Hayao Miyazaki. So good list uh, for next week. Check it out. We'll see you next week. Yeah.